Before we jump in today, we wanted to tell you about a new campaign and newsletter from Getting Smart. It's called What If, and it's all about encouraging educators and ed leaders to think differently about education and learning. Every week, we will send you a What If question about the future of learning, leading, and community. This campaign is all about engagement, so we'd love it if you'd sign up and share your thoughts on Twitter, or send them to editor at gettingsmart.com. Sign up for the list today at gettingsmart.com slash what dash if. We can't wait to see what you come up with. All right, let's jump in. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and today I'm speaking with Rhonda Broussard. She is the founder of the Beloved Community. She's a veteran uh, educator, uh, teacher, and school leader, student of the world, and author of a beautiful upcoming book called One Good Question. Rhonda, it's so good to see you. Tom, same. I still remember the first time we met in Kansas City, and I'm happy that we've been able to keep this thread um, in our intellectual curiosity moving forward. And Ron, I, I think we discovered that our sort of life life paths uh, probably intersected 20 some years ago. Um, you were teaching in a small school in New York. It was the beginning of that small school's uh, movement where New York City was really a leader in creating new high schools and seven, 12 schools. And um, that's really where you, uh, where you got your teaching chops, right? Yeah, I was, you know, teaching in New York was such a gift. Um, and I taught all over the country, right? So Tom, you know, I'm from Louisiana. I started teaching in New Orleans when I was 17. I taught high school in Ferguson. I taught dropout recovery in Long Beach. I taught really affluent suburban high schools in Connecticut. Um, so when I got to Brooklyn and got to teach in this really small community-based school um, where most of the teachers were from Brooklyn um, and most of our students lived within like a 10 block radius, it really did change my perspective on what community school could mean, right? I, I deeply wanted to be able to walk to my school, to see my students on the weekends, to see them out in community. Um, and that time meant that. So like I would get on the bus in the morning to work and there were kids getting on the bus with me. Um, and we would stop and get fries after school and there were kids getting fries at the same corner store. Um, and it just helped as a transplant to New York, it helped make my Brooklyn a lot more intimate and my understanding of how school and community and and that specific neighborhood in Fort Greene work together. Um, yeah, it was a really good learning. Yeah, it was community school in two respects, right? It was a, a school that fully embraced a community. And then because it was a small community, you created a, a beautiful sense of community within that school. Absolutely. And we had, you know, this is the first school that I worked in that had um, um, like a health clinic facility in the building. And so during the day, you would see young people going down for physical health, for mental health, for um, social support services. And it's the kind of thing that I'd read about in books like, oh, you can have a school that has more services in it than just education. Um, and I think it really did make a difference for how young people saw their holistic their holistic health, holistic education. Uh, Rhonda, I, I loved your um, One Good Question blog, and I was so happy to participate that uh, in that. And I'm thrilled that it turned into a book, and we're going to talk about that today. But uh, before we do, I would love in, I'd love to dive into the work that you're leading at uh, Beloved Community. You're really, I, I would say, the leading nonprofit um, consultancy in, in equity 
uh, at least in education. I know you work more broadly than that, but you are really known for the the equity audits that that you help um, organizations, schools, and communities uh, conduct. Uh, I'd love to know more about that. Why are you doing that work? How do you do it? And uh, toward what end uh, do you uh, conduct uh, equity audits? Yeah. Um, and you know, Tom, this is something that I we didn't set out to do as beloved community, but it became a, a really clear need when we started working with our first groups of schools in New Orleans, um, that when organizations, schools in particular, name their pain points around equity, they're often naming community engagement, student engagement, um, talent recruitment and retention. There are lots of strategies out there to support those. We said, yes, we can help you advance those things. And we actually need you to understand the interrelatedness between your governance, your finance, your operations, um, in addition to your programming, your pedagogy, your people-facing side, right? There is a, a clear business part of this. Um, and we need to bring, be able to bring your operations folks into the conversation early on. Too often we send the part-facing team members out to fix the people um, but we know from an economic equity perspective that we need your COO to be as engaged in the equity audit as um, your programs officer, your academic officer. And so what we built, um, and AWA is the newest iteration of that, AWA is the platform that brings all of our equity audits together, we built an opportunity for mutual accountability within schools, right? So looking at how do we understand equity diversity and inclusion for all of our stakeholders and what the what it looks like to shift it for our student population, our parent population, our community partners, our teachers, our staff, our building administrators. Um, if we have some uh, fee-based programs, how do we understand our fee-based programs? If we have some scholarships or teacher awards or employee assistance benefits, how do we put an equity lens on all of those things um, and really make space for that mutual accountability to take root, right? We can build any kind of equity work plan. And you know this, as consultants, we're going to leave, right? The people who are there to hold your feet to the fire are your actual stakeholders in the building. Um, and so this tool gives some space for them to do that and say, what does it look like for student experience? What does it look like for parent experience? What does it look like um, on the pedagogy side? And so we're excited to see more and more communities use the tool um, and really think about what it means for them to embed the questions in everything that they do. We really believe if you ask these three questions in any setting, it will change the conversation. So one, to what extent is blank population representative of our community, right? And so if you're talking about it in schools, you could be looking at your gifted and talented program. To what extent are the students in that program representative of our student demographics? You could be talking about um, your teacher leader program. To what extent are the teachers who are being trained to be building administrators representative of our population? Um, on the equity side, to what extent are program outcomes predictable by people's demographics? Um, and we know a lot of the answers already, right? Oftentimes district leaders will say, Rhonda, I can tell you right now, our teachers aren't representative of our student population. We already know that. We don't need the audit to tell us. Um, and what the audit will do is say, where do we actually diagnose the need? So where do we start the work to correct this um, inequity or lack of diversity or lack of inclusion with our school communities? Um, and then that inclusion question, to what extent 
when I when you invite me to the table, to what extent is my voice empowered? To what extent am I respected? To what in, ex, extent do I feel like I matter in the decisions that impact me? And that's true from your youngest people through those who have the most positional power. Uh, Rhonda, that's a, a great process. And we, we appreciate the framework that you bring to communities because it really is uh, a comprehensive framework. We'll, we'll include um, your, your graphic in the show notes so that people get a, an appreciation for all the dimensions that you look at. Uh, do, you, do you help people uh, build a plan uh, mm-hmm. on, on what to do, how to do it going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a multi-year equity work plan. So we do, we start off with the institutional audit that I was just talking about. There's also a professional development component, the equity lens map. Um, oftentimes folks will say, okay, we know we need to do some education and we'll, we'll offer the same trainings to everyone. And in the same way that we differentiate for young people in the classroom, we know that everyone is at a different place on their own journey to being equity champion. So there's an assessment that helps you understand what the folks in your district, building, grade level, team, et cetera, actually need to move forward. Um, And then we use those two pieces of data and then can help build out a multi-year equity work plan. All of that is a part of the AWA software. Um, And that multi-year plan, you're choosing three to five goals. Right. What are the priorities that you're actually going to name? What are the metrics that you're going to measure? Who's going to own them? How will you look at interim progress? What's the continuous improvement process that you're going to use? So you'll go back to community and say, hey, is this still working? Do we need to make some changes? Um, And what we really encourage folks to do is to think about all of the other data points that they can bring into the conversation. Right. The, The audits themselves give you one set of data points. Um, but if you can pair these with interviews, focus groups, site visits, observations, you know this, it makes it easier for folks to understand what the actual opportunity is for change. Um, the audit is really robust. So there are almost 200 indicators. You can't take 200 first steps. You're going to have to sit down and say, what are the things we can move the needle on now? What's already, what could be a quick win, right? This might be some change that doesn't require more funding. It doesn't require more staffing, um, but that you can make changes in a process that's going to have more equitable or inclusive opportunities. Um, What's something that you might already be doing, right? You're rolling out a new literacy curriculum. You're rolling out a new um, science uh, protocol, new science lab protocol. How can you make sure that when you're rolling out this new thing, you've embedded an inclusive lens in it? You've embedded a curriculum audit into it. Um, And then the rest of the answers might be things that are going to take you longer to figure out. They're going to take you, you have to marshal some resources to get there. Um, And you have to plan that out, right? You're like, okay, well, this is what our our next budget cycle is. This is what it's going to take us to do blank. Let's start planning for it. Um, And then we really encourage folks to name what we call enduring conversations. The audits are going to lift up some things for you that are hard um, and that you, the leadership team, stakeholders, you might not have a very clear path forward for, but you know that you need to bring more people into the conversation. And so what will it look like for you to talk about X for the next three years um, and really understand more deeply different perspectives in your community before y'all make a decision about how to move forward? So equity work plan helps you map out all of those types of actions um, and get to something that you can then, again, bring back to community and say, this is where we're headed. How are you going to help us 
stay accountable to this. Rhonda, I'd love to dive into the book. One good question, but uh, remind me of the origin story of the blog uh, of the same name. I think you started that blog six years ago. Um, I started the blog, yeah. Was it six years? I started the blog in 2015. And um, I had had, I had just come back from my Eisenhower Fellowship. And um, I give all of this credit to Michael Horn, um, who's a prolific writer. And he had this, I'd written this, a blog series on my fellowship that Michael appreciated. And he said, Hey, why don't you come and write, um, do an interview with me for my Forbes column. And it was an interesting process. And I'm like, Oh, okay. This is uh, this is what writing looks like and what that, what that publication uh, process was. Um, and he really encouraged me to keep writing and keep telling my story. And I was like, well, let me figure out what that is. Um, and I had some space, right? So I was like, I don't know what's next for me, but I do have all of these amazing contacts in education around the globe, and I am intensely curious. Um, let me spend some time just talking to folks and understand what's happening from their perspective. Um, so I sat down and thought about what was the question that was driving me um, and looked at some of my professional networks at the start and said, okay, who are folks that I want to talk to? And some of these are folks that I knew and had worked with. Some are folks that I met um, as a part of the conversation. Some folks were cold calls. Um, every time I would go to a conference, this was still pre- pre-COVID times, you go to conferences and meet people. I'm like, oh, this is great. So like, I'm, there might be three people from a conference that I had not met before, and now they were interviews in the blog. Um, and so for two years, I published... Uh, maybe bi-monthly interviews with folks and um, really love the process and just getting to be curious and not have my own end goal. I didn't think this was going to become a book. Um, Well, uh, a lot of us got to take part in that uh, journey and were really attracted by um, the idea of a good question. Uh, So thanks for that. And uh, we all love the fact that it it did turn into a book and we appreciate how it's organized uh, thematically. So I want to dive in and ask you a couple of questions about a few chapters. Chapter six deals with college and Rhonda, you know, I think back 20 years ago, it was pretty clear college was the equity issue. We wanted to help more kids uh, go to college. Um, But today work has changed. Um, Life has changed. College got a lot more expensive. States um, disinvested in uh, in college education. As a result, a lot more families took on a lot more um, student debt. There's a lot of new alternatives that are out there. How, how do you think about college and equitable pathways to uh, to, to to valuable um, employment and citizenship? Yeah, it's so complicated for me, Tom, because as a black woman growing up in the South college was the answer, right? Like we have our stories of who were the first folks in our families to get to college, who were the first folks to finish and graduate. I, I still remember going to my dad's graduation when I was in first grade. Um, and when I look at my own children, right, 16 and 13, it's hard for me to, to imagine a next step for them that doesn't include college, um, just because it was so ingrained in us that this is the path that gets you to stable career. This is the path that gets you to uh, leadership opportunities. 
um, and making space to say that might not be true for everyone, but then particularly for black and brown folks in this country, what it looks like to have multiple degrees and still not get advancement in your career, um, or what it looks like to have uh, an engineering degree and still not get hired by the new tech firm. Um, there is this misnomer about what college is doing. Um, and so the, the questions, because I have questions and no answers, Tom, the questions are, what is it about the network of the institution that's propelling you forward? And when I get to this institution, am I going to get that same network? Um, and will it produce the same types of results for me over time? Right. If, 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 if the thing I think about learning about education, right, I, I can question, I can um, push back on text and context and, and history stays true. At which point does that, does that turn into a marketable skill and where does my life experience intersect with that? Um, yeah. So things, I mean, things that I, I think are interesting in the college decision. And this is, this is something that just came up. It has nothing to do with the book. But there are um, career paths that young people see for themselves that folks in my generation, I'm 46, don't even know exist, right? There are ways that um, a YouTube generation, a TikTok generation, an Amazon generation perceive of earning money that have nothing to do with your education or degrees. Um, and I'm still trying to learn what they are because like college for some young people becomes uh, an event um, or a social experience. And it doesn't for them look like this is my pathway to career in the ways that it did for folks in our generation. Um, and then the big question is who gets, who gets that freedom? Who gets the freedom to use college in the ways that they want um, and still have the social safety net, still have the access to housing and um, living their most vibrant lives um, in the ways that they choose. Um, and if my kids are listening, I still want you to go to college, right? Like take a gap year. You can go to college in the States or abroad. All of that's on the table. Um, but I think there is, there is something that's still interesting about having a scaffolding place. Yeah. I think our, our our friend Michael Horn would say, um, but go when you're ready and you know why, when it's for you and you're clear that you're going uh, someplace for a good good reason. And you figured out the cost piece, right? Like you, you mentioned this before, the cost of college in the United States is exorbitant. Um, and the debt, um, the debt that happens and again, particularly for folks who are starting university and not completing. So you're not getting to the degree that in theory is going to help you earn this money to pay for the debt um, is a real problem in our country. I have infinite respect for student affairs and uh, college completion specialists who are counseling young people about where their grades are, what completion looks like, and if this is the right time to take on that kind of a debt for where they're headed. Um, I don't think we have enough of those hard conversations with folks. Yes. Now, I, I appreciate that you had honored the complexity of that question. I think it's very difficult to both be creative and expansive about the new options that are available and to hold firm to equity um, and, and make sure that we're not just creating um, new forms of inequity in, uh, in post-secondary. Um, 
Chapter seven deals with agency. And Rhonda, I think we at Getting Smart have come to believe that agency might just be the most important outcome of, of learning and development. This, this notion of really knowing yourself, understanding your gifts and your challenges and your um, and, and the causes that most speak to you, knowing how and where to act on the world uh, might be the most important thing. And chapter seven really uh, deals with that. How, how do you think about agency and equity today as a result of your interviews? Yeah, I think um, to your point that agency might be the most important, most important thing um, for us to focus on right now. The conversations that we had for so long about education were the student as vessel, um, and then shifting, um, you remember this in like the uh, mid to late 90s, shifting around teacher as coach models, right? And how do we really take this approach as opposed to student as um, single vessel? But when we look at the, the questions that are showing up for our young people now, again, it's what does personalized learning mean for me? You can't get to personalized learning without some sense of agency. As adults in the education space, if we don't believe young people have and should have agency over their learning, we can't advocate for a strong personalized learning model. Um, you could get in the trap of thinking that these young people, because they have blank supports at home, because they have this type of test score, because they come from this type of neighborhood, actually deserve some agency, deserve some choice in their own lives. I mean, I remember this as, as a young child in Louisiana where I had access to the gifted and talented program. And my uncle, who's three months older than me, we went to the same schools and he was not in my programs. And I was like, why, why do I get to go into a classroom where there are couches and microscopes and we're doing all these projects and he is doing worksheets, right? That doesn't make any sense. We're going to be on the same playground at recess um, but in those systems, they thought, huh, this group of students can make choices for themselves. And these, this group of students still needs the adult to make all of the choices. I think that's the biggest paradigm that we have to shift um, when we think about agency. And it shows up. I mean, in the book, we talk with folks like um, Nicole Young, who's saying young people can be involved in education policy development, right? Like go beyond what's happening in my direct classroom and how do we bring you into a policy conversation um, with folks who are thinking about um, what the incentives are for teachers and students to develop their own agency in the classroom, right? Peter Howe talks about this from an international school's perspective, but like, are we even making space for our teachers to have agency in the ways that they're showing up in terms of pedagogy and curriculum development and, and student engagement? Uh, chapter nine asks this really provocative question of, is uh, a good school enough? Uh, how do you think about that today? Yeah, Tom, I'll tell you, it's, um, whew, is a good school enough? Um, you know, after seeing all of these schools around the country um, and then getting an opportunity to visit so many schools in other countries, I don't think, I don't think a good school can ever be enough um, if the greater society is lacking that social safety net. 
Um, in the U.S., we ask our schools to do more and more. Um, and even when we have more resources, like in a COVID pandemic, we have more resources at the school level right now than we've had in decades past. But schools can't fix COVID. Um, and the idea that if we just put more resources, that same institution can take over for public health, that same institution can take over for behavioral health, that same institution can take over for housing and transit needs, can serve as an employment center for families, can serve as a um, social service center for young people, is unfair. It's unfair to the education institution. It's unfair to the educators themselves. Um, I think moving forward, and we talk about this, we have an opportunity to talk with folks who are leading in schools and really clear that here's what all of the partnership requires for us to provide enough safety for our young people. Um, at the time of the interviews, Ana Ponce was still leading Camino Nuevo um, in Los Angeles and the ways that they did integrated supports with healthcare and immigration services and uh, behavioral health is what made the difference for young people. Um, when you talk to Derwin Sisnett and he's talking about housing and education, right, we can build the schools, but if all of our families are moving or being pushed out of our neighborhoods, then who is the school there to serve? We have to make housing affordable and desirable for folks in the neighborhoods where we're from. Um, and so I think the most innovative things that are happening in schools right now are really pushing on some multi-sector solutions. Um, and they're working. I just, the school by itself is a misnomer, right? When you say, is the school, is school enough? Is a good school enough? What you're really saying is, does this neighborhood where the school is located have all of the infrastructure it needs to thrive? Do the young people who are coming into this building have all of the supports that they need to thrive? And then school can provide their primary function of education, co-curricular, social-emotional learning, um, because they know when the students leave every day, they're getting everything else that they need. Rhonda, you open uh, chapter one is about education 2030, and uh, your book includes uh, leading American educators as well as a number of international educators. And I noted that all the international educators that you asked about 2030 referenced the UN Sustainable Development Goals, but I don't think any of the American educators did. Um, what, what do you draw from that? Do we, do we as Americans need to, a little global competence? You know, Tom, the, the hilarious thing to me about this was that before I started this blog series, I was a world language teacher. I had run international schools. Um, and so I thought of myself as pretty worldly um, and had a pulse on what was happening in global education, um, had just finished a global education uh, fellowship study. And I didn't even know when I started the series that it was happening at the same time that the new sustainable development goals had come out. Um, so it felt like, okay, if I, if I think I'm fairly globally competent and I didn't know it was happening, how are all these other educators who are in more traditional U.S. education systems even understanding that this exists, right? So when I started the conversations with folks, every, every global leader I spoke to referenced the Sustainable Development Goals. 
they all talked about what it meant for their country, um, what they thought it was going to mean for us over time. And so this is 2015 when the goals came out. Virtually none of the American leaders referenced it. And, and even those who were in more global education spaces weren't using this as their guidepost. Um, and so I think part of the reason that writing the book was important to me was making this very specific connection with American educators. It says, we, the things that we're working on, the things that we're grappling with in our systems in the U.S. are not that different from what people in other countries are trying to work on. There are opportunities for us to learn from what they've built, opportunities for us to learn from the ways that they're approaching the challenges. Um, it's a different equity conversation to say, when we, we talk about parity, we mean, are you, can girls actually go to school, right? Like that was a baseline expectation for the um, UN is getting more girls into school. In the US, we're not struggling with that same specific question, but we have our own equity questions around access and who gets to go to preschool, who gets to go to post-secondary. Um, and so I just think the opportunity for American educators to pick their heads up a little bit and say, oh, you're actually trying to solve this same thing in Peru that we're trying to solve in, uh, goodness, uh, that we're trying to solve in New Orleans. Maybe we could learn something together. I, I love and appreciate that observation, Rhonda. We, in our last book, uh, Difference Making, suggested that the global goals, plus a couple other big challenges and opportunities, really ought to be uh, the secondary curriculum, or at least ought to be threaded through the secondary curriculum, because we think they're the most pressing issues of our day, and young people uh, deserve to see the Earth Honors Manual before they graduate from high school and have a sense of the challenges that we're, uh, we're leaving them. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, the idea of the SDGs as the curriculum is um, is really eye-opening because it makes space for young people to really connect with what are, what are the challenges that I'm experiencing right now and how does that impact what these long-term goals are for our planet? Um, and how can I start to connect with either other young people here in my neighborhood, in my community, or folks who are halfway across the globe on that solution end, right? Like I think there are ways in which technology has really united youth culture, um, but it's still staying on this fairly surface pop culture connection. How could we use that same thing to get deeper into understanding deeper into solutions? Rhonda, I want to close with a segment just called uh, one two one and uh, the, the first question is, um, I'd love to have you name one person that has really uh, shaped your understanding, somebody that you have a, a real sense of gratitude for today. Maybe it was uh, somebody you met as a result of this book, but uh, one person that, uh, that really helped shape your sense of the work and the path forward. I mean, the person who comes to mind, two people come to mind right away. Um, and so the first person is my grandmother, the grandmother who raised me, Jessie Mela de Celestine. Um, I always anchor in the ways that she raised us and what it, what it looked like for her to have opportunity and pain and joy and culture. The fact that I raise my children in French today is because I wanted to be in my grandmother's language with her. Um, and that really 
put me on this path around global education, right? I don't think, I didn't think as a teenager that my life would have any anything to do with uh, traveling the world or um, engaging in multilingual, multicultural um, career sectors. Um, and yeah, I think if I'd been born somewhere else and raised differently, I probably wouldn't have had the same, the same perspective. And my grandmother really um, inspired that in my life. Um, and the other person that I would name here, I know you said one, two, one, I was probably only supposed to give one person, but I'm going to say this anyway. Um, Dr. Fumzile Mlambonguka, who was UN uh, Executive Director for Women at the time of the blog. And um, doctor, I got to meet Dr. Fumzile a few times in that uh, time period. And her perspective on what it looks like for really building in the intersectionality of women leading and women succeeding as the way to move our entire planet forward is just inspiring, right? That there's no way to disconnect the work of women and the support of women from a larger societal uh, goal. Rhonda, there's, uh, there, there's two insights that I take from your, your work, uh, both, both that uh, beloved community and your book. The first is just the power of the question that for teachers and teacher leaders, for community leaders, the power of asking good questions uh, is is so um, vital. And you did such a beautiful job of, of illustrating that. The, the second is uh, that equity is systemic, uh, that, that we have to look comprehensively, systematically um, at equity. And I think your equity audits uh, do that. And I, I think um, each of the chapters uh, gets at that. And I think these two insights of, of equity is systemic and asking good questions are are intimately related. Those are the two big takeaways uh, that, that I bring from our time together. What would you add to that? I don't know. I don't know if this shows up in the book uh, explicitly, but I know it shows up for us in our work at Beloved Community. And um, And I mentioned it when I talked about my grandmother, centering joy in our daily lived experience absolutely matters. You know, the the work of dismantling inequitable systems, dismantling white supremacy, rebuilding uh, inclusive systems, equitable systems in its place is generational work, right? It took us centuries to get here. We're not going to fix this the next five years. We're not going to fix this with the next strategic plan. Um, how do we keep focused on long-term generational change and make space for joy in our daily lives, um, make space to recognize the pain, recognize the struggle and the very critical needs of our young people, um, and not divorce that from the fact that they can still experience joy um, with us and alongside of us. Oh, that's beautiful. Um... I, I wonder if there's a question, if we, if we close with a, a what if question, what do, do you have a what if question on your mind? What, what if, what if every young person really got to name what they needed, have those resources available to them and chart their own course in safety, right? chart their own course with support and love. Um, yeah, 
That's a beautiful question. I love that. What if they got to name what they needed, had those resources provided, and got to chart their own course? Um, Rhonda, it was that calling that I began to sense in, in 1992, that notion of giving every kid that gift of what they needed so that they could imagine um, their own path forward. So I, I love that question, um, that sense of possibility behind it. Um, Rhonda, we, we love your book. Uh, we love your work. We really appreciate uh, both as a, a contribution. Um, we appreciate you being here today. Um, it was great to connect. Uh, I want to thank uh, my colleague Ashley for uh, producing today. This blog is, or the, the podcast is possible because of the whole team at, uh, at Getting Smart. Um, thanks to Rhonda Broussard for joining us. She's uh, CEO at the beloved community. She's the author of One Good Question. Every parent and educator uh, ought to get a copy of that book and enjoy it. Ponder the questions that are there. Uh, in the meantime, keep learning and keep innovating for equity. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason, at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 